Hello, listeners, and welcome to Talking Addiction Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and there are a lot of organizations and resources out there doing some real amazing work for individuals who have substance use disorders, family members, loved ones, and even professionals like myself in, in trying to help us help people. So today I'm joined by Ashley Nowakowski and Katie Morrow who are with Your Choice to Live Incorporated, who we're going to learn a lot about what they do to help a lot of different people. So, you know, ladies, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And this organization, I first met you and heard from you at a luncheon for an event where your family shared your story. And that was a couple of years ago, I think, when that happened. And the big thing I've noticed is when we talk about people with uh, substance use, it's so focused on the individual story, the person who's got the problem or the issue, and and we hear them talk. Yours was about a family story. And that's always intrigued me that there's a difference between sharing a family story versus the individual story. Yeah. Yeah, when we started Your Choice, you know, going through my brother's use you know, we felt shunned, we felt alone, we didn't know what to do. And so when he did get into treatment, we were like, okay, we know there's other families out here struggling. And although his story is impactful, you know, it does affect more than just him. So when we started to, you know, talk to people and say, hey, this is an idea we want to do, they're like, well, we want to hear from you. We want to hear how you felt. And so we thought about it and we're like, okay, let's just show everybody how substances can affect everyone. Yeah, and I think that was, when you hear people talk, you know, someone who's sharing their story and then they talk about where they've been, the audience isn't always as filled with other people who are struggling with those issues. A lot of time it's filled with family members, loved ones, other professionals who are just trying to learn more about it. But in a way, you were connecting with them on the fact that you, as a family, experienced a lot of what they were experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember after um, a presentation I had, she was maybe in her 60s and she came up to me and she said, I've been going to therapy for 40 years and hearing your story, it hit me because I didn't realize going through her brother's addiction, all these thoughts and feelings she was having. And she's like, to hear somebody else say that, she said it was just absolutely eye-opening to her. Yeah, and it's you just family members with, there's a lot of shame with it. We don't know what to do. We don't want to talk about it. What is everyone else going to think? Over time, I've worked more with family members than just the individual. And a lot of family members think that, just like other individuals who are struggling think, I'm the only one who's got this problem. Mm-hmm. And they go and they meet other people who are struggling. Yeah. It's the same thing that family members also through, but I think the amount of resources for family members is limited. Right. I would agree because, you know, you don't want to go out in the world and be like, my child is using substances, right? You don't want to tell your friends or, um, you know, because you don't know what they're going to think. Are they going to have advice? Are they going to shun you? And so, you know, like you said, there are no resources. We don't really have people to talk to because we're ashamed, obviously, of what's going on. And, you know, it's painful, too. Yeah, so that's 
I think more time, more often it'd be important to hear family stories. You know, I think it'd be, if there were more books about families writing their stories, because there's a ton about individuals and like their, mm-hmm. their struggle. And there's, there's plenty of movies depicting an individual struggle, but how many focus on the family, I think would be an area if we see more growth of every person that has that struggle is a part of a family. Right. So they, there are people who are being affected, but family members, for the most part, stay silent mm-hmm. for, for too long. Right. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm really passionate about, you know, sharing my story as a sibling because, you know, now I've been through it. I've been through recovery. I've been through relapse. I have friends whose siblings are using or have passed away. And, you know, I'm noticing things like, you know, not only are we dealing with our our siblings' use, but our parents are heavily affected. So we have to support them, too, as, you know, their loss, their crying, their hurt, their grief. And then we also have our own grief that we kind of have to put aside because we want to be there for our parents or we don't want to make more waves. So there's so much, you know, on a sibling perspective that I don't think we share a lot because we're on both sides. You know, we're sometimes closer to our siblings than our parents are. And so now we're like stuck in the middle of these two people that are both hurting and grieving and we don't know what to do. I think that's hard too because a lot of, I think siblings get ignored through some of the process. And with no no intent, you know, there's, there's just an attempt to... You know, there's this one child who's struggling, and we're trying to do everything we can to to keep that person alive or out of jail or out of a hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's like, well, they're the other child or the other children, like they're doing okay at least. So I, I think they're going to be okay on their own. But you just meet people, you talk to people, ones that I've met and seen. There's a lot that's impacted with even siblings and even other relationships you can imagine, like with relatives and everything and there's a lot of people affected by that's why we say it's like a family system it's not just one person or Mm -hmm. even the core family but as you branch out there's more people involved and affected but I don't even think we can really know the true impact for some of those family ripples no I don't think so Unless you you really have to take a step back and look. But, I mean, ours extends to our extended family, you know. There's parts that they get affected by um, just because of, you know, like grandparents and things like that. So, yeah, it does go far for sure. I remember I I testified in Madison about some state stuff that was going to try and change to help with the opioid epidemic. And they were – we were – Fourth on the list of things to talk about. But before that, there was all these other issues that were adoption issues and all these other things. And as they were talking about them, the opioid issue would come up that Mm -hmm. it was one of the issues that was impacting it. So one of them was adoption. And what came up was how many grandparents Mm -hmm. were becoming parents. And at the time, I just had a recent case where I was counseling a set of grandparents whose um, daughter had uh, opioid use disorder and she was really heavily into her using and they just took over adopting their grandchild and that was something that they never anticipated doing mm-hmm. but that impacted their lives significantly but those are those are ones we don't always think about 
Yeah. Yeah. It happens a lot. We get lots of calls like that for sure. So your, your family story started it, but where you guys are today is, is a lot different. So before we get into some of the things you're doing now, how did it, how did you get involved in all this <laughs> with this organization and what they do? So I am not related to them. <laughs> I have a very close uh, inner look at their family, but I am <laughs> completely separate from them. But um, I'm in long-term recovery. So I've been in, oh my gosh, this month, I'll be in recovery from a heroin addiction for 14 years. And so, um, you know, after I got out of treatment, I worked for a treatment program. I ran a treatment program. I went on to college and I spent a lot of time in the treatment field and I just saw so many lives that were so impacted by substance use and everything. It was just so sad. And so um, a job with drug-free communities came up, and I never knew that prevention existed, honestly. So <laughs> getting into that whole, like, I mean, I was I was just blown away that there was a whole field of people that work in prevention, and it was so interesting to me. And so I worked in that um, with that for a little while, and then I met Ashley's mom, Sandy, and we just connected. And so she was like, she's like, there's something about you. We just, you just have to come and meet Ashley. You're just like her. And um, so I was brought on as a female perspective because in the beginning, Ashley and her brother and um, I were traveling around to school sharing um, how choices impacted our life. And so they didn't want just a male perspective on addiction. Um, they wanted a female. And my addiction was very heavily impacted by mental health issues. So I kind of gave a mental health perspective to that. Um, and so, yeah, I've just been with them ever since. <laughs> That's two great things because Wisconsin, I know, has had struggles with this. And I'm sure it's not just Wisconsin, but resources for women and mm-hmm. addressing you know, women specific issues about it. And I can imagine even at like a younger age with like teens and, and school age kids like that is an even another area that's like not addressed as much. So you coming in with that perspective specifically to make sure it wasn't being ignored. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Yeah. yeah. It's really easy to, you know, when you're hearing somebody's story and you're like, oh, I'm not this, I don't check off these boxes, so addiction's not going to happen to me, or this isn't going to happen to me, so we wanted to cover all the bases in that, or try to, mm-hmm. we're never going to cover them all, but. Right, yeah. <laughs> and the mental health piece is huge, too. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's there's so much, you know, people ask me, because I do, you know, here in Wisconsin, you have to have the different licenses to do the different things, so mm-hmm. I, have, I have the license to do substance abuse and I have license to do mental health and people are always wondering or asking often you know well which one is it which one chicken or the egg and I just tell people it's they're both in my office you know if I got someone who's struggling with substance use and mental health I gotta figure out a way how to help in both of those I can't just say I'm gonna focus on one and not the other right. or do this and not that like there's a balance between these are these are both happening and how do I help with that not focusing on just one and like hoping the other gets better because I've seen that happen with people is if I address mm-hmm. this maybe this one will just go away yeah. right I mean for me all my mental health problems kind of went away once my substance abuse was addressed but they were so there together in the beginning that it would have been impossible to weed out one or the other yeah um, and treat one without the other yeah so that's good so do you guys do you how do you address that when it comes up, like with mental health? Because you're dealing with, you know, like kids and 
you're dealing with family, so I imagine the issue of mental health comes up quite a bit. So whether you get questions about it or whether you, you see it in a situation, like how do you approach that? So we, um, we definitely see both. Uh, we tend to do more education, though. So when we see the mental health come up with the substances, we always refer to, um, you know, a mental health specialist to address that. That's good. Yeah. I, I found uh, I've been presenting more on mental health, too, like stigmas mm-hmm. on mental health. I even presented on the stigmas about coming to counseling. I uh, never thought I would have to do that, but... Right. Just the concept of like going to counseling, going to therapy, like what happens, what goes on. Like you'd be amazed at the things people think right. about going to counseling. <laughs> Here I am saying it's just, you know, come to my office, there's two chairs, we sit down and we have a conversation. But there's a lot of misunderstandings of what it means to, to go to therapy, to have mental health and all that. And I found I learned that because of all the work I did with stigmas about substance use. Because mm-hmm. that's filled with so many stigmas. Mm-hmm. But stigmas are filled with mental health. Stigmas are filled with, you know, counseling. And there's even stigmas with prevention, I imagine, that are out there. Yeah. yeah. So you got to address stigmas no matter what area you work in with substance use and mental health. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and I think going back to your question, too, our biggest tip for parents, whether it be with mental health or substance use, is to not dismiss high-risk behavior. So whether you're seeing, like, certain behaviors um, related to mental health, we, you know, we tell them don't get in the trap of saying, well, it's just weed or it's just a little bit of depression or anything like that. We really encourage parents to address it early and get treatment and help early rather than let it kind of run its course. Yeah, in my mind, I'm like, oh, red flag, like, red flag. And there's like, it's just a little or it's just that. Like, Mm -hmm. in my mind, I hear that from someone, and whether it's, like, a parent or, like, a kid, in my mind, I'm hearing that come from the very same people Mm -hmm. who I'm treating who are, their their use is destroying their lives. Mm -hmm. It is Mm -hmm. wreaking havoc, and it's, it's the same, it's only this, it's just this. And you hear it even from parents, and you're just kind of like, oh, boy, like, yep. how much time do you have to, to sit down and talk? <laughs> right. But it doesn't always happen, which that's that's hard, too, is when you present and, and when you meet with people and when you talk, you guys don't have, like, hour-long time for all these people that might have one question or they might want to come up to you and ask you something or say something. Like, how do you really make that mark work? When it could be like a minute conversation or only a five minute, I get like a whole hour with people to try and talk with them. (laughs) So Sandy's the expert in this area. She gets a lot of phone calls um, from families needing help and they, she could spend hours on the phone with them, but she's really big on like, okay, this happened in the past, but what can we do going forward? And so, and she's not a counselor, but she's a uh, licensed interventionist. So she'll say, okay, here's the steps you can take moving forward. So in those crisis points, she focuses more on what can you do right now versus all this stuff happened in the past because you can't change that. So she's really good at that. Yeah, and she's also really good at helping parents establish or reestablish boundaries. She's huge on that. And so sometimes it's just as simple as, no, you can't do that. You know, and like, she's really good at kind of weeding out those issues and helping people in a very short amount of time figure out the core. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really hard with family members often ask 
those questions like what do I do and they're really hoping there's some answer that's gonna really take care of things pretty quickly right versus when I have someone coming to see me for an issue they know like there's there's some stuff we got to figure out there's some areas we got to explore and this is going to take some time but when I have families come see me it's almost like they think like this one session is going to get some answers and some mm-hmm. quick decisions to be able to say, well, this is how you take care of it. And, and here you go. But they usually kind of ask you, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I, I, the biggest thing that I found useful is I don't, I don't tell people what to do because I'm not the one who has to like live with that decision. Right. So I get asked a lot, do I bail my kid out of jail? Do I kick them out of the house? Those are like the two big examples that I get. Yes. And I tell them every time I say, I'm not going to tell you to kick them out. I'm not going to tell you to keep them in. But let's talk about what happens if you kick them out. Because mm-hmm. when they, what happens when you get that phone call saying that they have no place to go? What happens when they're in jail mm-hmm. and they tell you how bad it is? Mm-hmm. But then I also say, well, what happens if you keep, what happens if you do bail them out? Mm-hmm. What happens if you, don't kick them out. So I just tell people I don't make the decisions for you because it's not it's not a fair risk thing. If right. I tell you to do this, and then you got to go deal with that, I'm I'm still in a good spot. Yeah. But the only thing I do with families is I really I walk through what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and what do you do then? How do you deal with that? Then I think they feel better about the decision they make. Versus being like, well, AJ told me this. Right. And AJ said to do this. <laughs> right. I, I never say, like, this is the decision to go make. Yeah. I would say we're the exact same way, too. Uh, Sandy is as well. But we're trying to, like, give parents the power back. Because a lot of times in these situations, parents have lost all power. Mm-hmm. So giving them the information, then they make that choice and they stick with that choice, I think is just something that... Im- gives them that power and that strength to keep going. Right. Yeah, my mom went through that with a lot of my use. Um, she, I lived at home for mo- much of it, and she agonized over, you know, her friends would tell her, kick her out, you know, <laughs> like, tell her she has no place to go. And I, she says she just agonized over it. And she always tells the story, but she was at a Al-Anon meeting, mm. and she was just, like, distraught over what to do with me. And someone just slipped her a note and said, you'll know what to do when the time's right. And she just held on to that, and then when she finally, when it was finally time to kick me out, she did. And um, but yeah, I think that's a struggle for all parents. Like, there's no formula as to how to handle this to make sure the outcome's good. Just there's, there's no formula, as we always tell parents to raising drug-free kids. Yep. There's things you yeah. can do to help, right. but nothing's foolproof or guaranteed to work. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to be another person that says they, they've got, like you said, they've got so many people. They do talk about it. They have a certain amount of people telling them, we'll do this. And they have a certain mm-hmm. amount of people telling them to do that. So they probably feel like no matter what they do, there's there's someone that's not agreeing with that decision they make. And that's mm-hmm. already hard enough to do because you got half the people saying one thing. So for me, I'm not trying to become one of those balances. Right, right. And, and say, if you don't do this, you're wrong. Or if you do this, you're wrong. You know, either way, you can have the power to make any of those choices. You can choose to not bail your kid out, or you can choose to bail your kid out. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying it's right or wrong, these are your choices, but let's at least talk about what you're going to go through 
after, what you're going to experience as a result. Right. Prepare for that because it's not just that easy to say, kick them out or not. Right. Like, right. Where are they going to live? What yeah. Are, yeah. Yep. It's not a to be or not to be than just answer it. It's a lot more than what happens after I make that choice. Right. And a lot of times, too, that inner fighting or not fighting but inner struggle is between the two parents so dad wants to kick it kick them out mom wants them not to or vice versa so i mean in a lot of families we work with that it's just getting the parents on the same page to make the choice together and then it even gets harder and we're noticing this more now than ever with the divorced parents one parent wants to do it one way, the other one wants to do it the other way, and they can't see it eye to eye, and the kid's just completely lost. So outside of just society, inside these little <laughs> homes, there's a lot of, well, what do we do? I'll often see where, where they go, I want to do this, and she wants to do this. Yeah. What do we do? Right. Like, I'm, I'm like the, I'm the deciding factor on what decision to make because they're, they, yeah. they want to do it differently, but... I always tell them whatever comes out of this, whatever decisions made, you two or as a family, because I encourage people to include other family members, you mm-hmm. know, taking in factor like age and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But whatever it comes down to is you have, you both have to be on the same page. Yeah. yeah. You both have to help one another with that choice. So mm-hmm. knowing you're going to struggle with saying this or doing this is then how do you guys work with one another to get through that? Because whenever there's a split, mm-hmm. you know, and with a lot of people that I've worked with, they'll they'll notice that split. They'll see that there's a a way to kind of go to mom or go to dad yes. or do that, and, <laughs> and that's they're very that that becomes very easy to do. Yeah, and and that gets in between marriages, and that gets in between families, and I, I see that with a lot of people I work with. Yeah, that was my brother for sure. He, My mom is, you know, mom. And so he would say, I just need $200 or I need to do this. And she would do it, but then not tell my dad. And my dad was the one that's like, nope. You're not, you kick him out. And then, so he was able to separate them. And then at the end, once they came together, he's like, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. So it's really important to be on the same page. Yeah, that's why that help for families is so important. Because they don't come to me saying... We've been doing this and everything's going well. Right. You know, they've tried things. They've worked out their solutions. They've tried it this way. And, and mm-hmm. usually there's been a lot of things that haven't worked. Mm-hmm. And then when you run out of options, you got to go somewhere to find out new things. And that's yeah. through, like, therapy. That's through, you know, information organizations such as yours that have that those tools. Yeah. They need to go to those things to learn that because they're not just going to pick it up out of nowhere. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things my mom always said when my brother was a teenager struggling with substances is she just thought she would drop him off at the counselor, they would fix him, she'd pick him up and be fine. She didn't realize, like, how much work needs to be done within the family. So, you know, our advice for families is if you have a loved one that's suffering, you know, with their substance use, you need to also go to therapy um, as couples, individually, siblings, because there's a lot to work through. And if, you know, for them to be successful, we all have to change. We all have to make changes. We all have to do that. So it's really important for everybody in that family unit to get some sort of support, help, however that looks for that family. Do you ever get the the family or parents who are like, well, I don't have a job. I'm not the one with the drug problem or I don't have... Oh, Yeah 
Like that's that's like the common response I get to, you know, you should go to like Al-Anon. You should go to some kind of recovery or want you mm-hmm. just something like right. find something that that's going to help you. And the the first response I normally get is I'm not the one that has the problem. And my, the second thing I often hear is they say, we've already done so much. We've right. already poured, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into someone getting treatment. We've already mm-hmm. experienced this. And they, so these are all reasons why I'm hearing they don't want to or they're not, they're not going to. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you guys respond to that? How do you try and discourage that way of thinking that they don't need it? Well, I would say... And if Sandy were here, I think she would say um, that it's for the sake of your child. So if, if that's a situation, you know, if your child is going through treatment and you don't want to go to an Al-Anon meeting to learn more, what is that saying to your child? I don't care. It's not important. So just sometimes you got to suck it up, buttercup, and you got (laughs) to do things that might make you uncomfortable, but also shows your child that you're willing to make changes. You're willing to learn more to support them. Yeah, when I got out of treatment, my whole family quit drinking and supported me. And I didn't even think it mattered at the time, but I remember hearing that they'd all made that decision together and that alcohol wasn't going to be part of family gatherings. And, you know, they weren't the ones with the problem. They didn't have to do that, but it was such a huge, like, show of support for me and what I was going through. It was just awesome. Yeah, I hear that. That, that always comes up when I'm working with someone who's, I get referred for, like, a drinking and driving and or I'm working with someone with alcohol use, that how the family or the spouse... Does that mean I have to do it? Do I have to quit drinking now? Do we have no more alcohol anywhere ever? Kind of just go back to that conversation of I'm not going to tell you what to do. But with family members, I've learned that I always ask them, okay, well, you don't have the drug problem, but are drugs causing a problem? Are, are they causing a problem for your house? Yeah. So whether it's not your problem that you don't want to like own up to, it's at least causing problems. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I'm interested to know if, if this is something that is touched up on anything is I, I tell them you've probably put a lot of energy, a lot of money, and even to some things that are not, they're trying to control it. Yes. And are trying to fix it and cure them. Right. And while the effort and the sincerity is there, it probably hasn't done as much as you thought it would. Mm-hmm. So I tell people that when they go to, therapy for themselves, when they go to an Al-Anon meeting, when they look at recovery for themselves as someone who loves someone with a substance use issue, that you're actually now putting those things in the places that are actually going to have an impact. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a meeting and you learn about like self-care or you find out there's other support out there, that's probably going to help you out a lot more than all the time you put into trying to be a detective catching the person using like that's that's actually oh gosh, probably help yes. you a lot more than that's me <laughs> uh and my mom uh, my brother did relapse a year and a half ago now and you know at first is like okay we need to get him help we need to do this we need to do that what can we do how can we do this and he was so resistant and finally our co- we've been meeting with a counselor and she said stop focusing on the outcome stop trying to get him better because you can't control that work on yourselves figure out what you can do to move forward and big eye opener 
it, it, it's, it's it, hard though, right? It's hard. Oh to... <laughs> my gosh! Even a year and a half later, it's still really hard, but it is a lot better. You can see the impact more, and I tell people it's kind of it's like there's a, a big boulder in your way, and you're trying to move this and, and fix it and control it, mm-hmm. but all that pushing you're trying to do is exhausting, and oh. you're not, and it ain't it ain't going anywhere. No, it's not. <laughs> so if you find what you need to put that back into where you can move, where you can heal, where you can get better, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be good for you. And it's okay to need that and do that. I think family members often get caught into thinking, I don't matter right now, or my well-being is not that important. We got to take care of the person who is sick or the person who is in trouble or the person who needs help. But yeah. it's not that easy to just take that and create, like you said, the outcome that you're hoping for. Right. You got to step away and find ways to take care of yourself. Yeah, and find joy in your own life instead of, um, what do they call it, anticipatory grief, where you're mm-hmm. like like anticipating the drunk driving or the death or the, you know, somebody coming into your office crying because something bad happened, you know. Um, so it's like stop living in that world because you're missing out on everything else that's going around going on right now in your life and that was huge huge so one of the things i want to talk about was i met you guys telling your story yep then a little bit later on you know a lot of times you meet some people you hear stories you might not even ever run into them again you might not even like you you just remember i remember that family that that i heard and but then all of a sudden you had those luncheon presentations where um, a lot of different presenters would come in and it'd be a lot of professionals. Um, it was at WCTC where I actually got my AODA associate's degree, okay. which started my field. That's where I got it from. Yeah. So I started going to those and then doing like the webinar online ones. I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough to present for you guys. Yes, thank you. Recently. <laughs> um, what I'm seeing though is all the stuff you guys are doing is it continues to grow mm-hmm. and there's more stuff that continues to happen. So how are we able to go from, let's just tell our story to now we're going to offer education. We're going to do programs. Like there's, how are we able to grow that? So we, um, I wouldn't say we follow an order of how <laughs> a lot of things are typically done um, in the prevention field. Um, so we started with our, our story and then, you know, we were finding, well, parents need to know and students need to know. So we were doing student presentations and then parent presentations. And then we did um, our wake up call bedroom where we were showing things. And so everything we've developed has come from a need we've seen from previous programs or phone calls that we're getting. And our philosophy is if it's a good, we take our time to figure out the idea, get it down, and then we just do it because, you know, we could, we've not always had successful programs, but we try them and we do the best we can. And so every opportunity we see, we just go for it. And that's how we kind of operate. And I think one of our strengths is that we're super flexible. So like, you know, drug trends change and things that parents need to know change. And we're constantly educating ourselves and looking for things that we can like add to tell parents. 
Um, because if you just stuck with the same old things, you get so far behind in what's out there. I mean, the technology is just insane. So we try to keep up and be flexible with our programs. Um, we survey after every program. And so yes. we read those and we take them to heart and we make changes based on those. And we try to give people what they're asking for. Yeah. yeah. And I with, see those surveys. So I, I, yeah. You know, they, 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 there is a lot poured into that. Yes. And, and a lot of responses. So I admit I've, I've opened been some up before when I've done them and I've, I've been the ones where there's been like 10 responses 12 responses but when I opened up the survey results for when I did I was at first taken back because there was so much feedback in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was you know as a presenter overwhelming but also like as as your organization hosts these yeah a lot of people let you know about what they think. And that's really great. Yeah. I mean, when COVID hit, our world turned upside down. Um, We were planning on doing a lot of programs online, but we weren't sure if people would understand it because it was literally like two weeks before the school shut down. And we're like, oh, we should do things online. Um, So once COVID hit, we're like, well, we can't go to schools. We had to get creative. And we're like, there's still these problems out here. And so we started our webinar series. And I think we've done like 29 webinars. And we have, you know, people, 200 to 800 people almost weekly now joining them. But I think one thing that we have um, in our organization, there's just three of us. Just three of us. That's, that's uh, crazy. Just three of you. Is we are super passionate. All three of us are super passionate. And we don't try to be perfect. We make mistakes. And I think people appreciate the realness of our organization and us. And we all have lived experience. And so I think that's really what's pushed us to, you know, continue going and people to continue coming back. And what stands out just from hearing it is it's not like there's, I think traditionally some people or some places, not everyone, but they think of, let me think of what they need. Let me think of what someone else needs. And I'm going to create something mm-hmm. that I'm going to say all of you need. So you all need this, or you all need this program and all that. But what's different with what you do is you listen to the, the audience or you listen to the people that are communicating with you or sharing with you or talking with you in every way. And you're taking that realizing that this is a need from this person. I'm sure other people that come mm-hmm. to the events and engage in our services, have some of those needs as well, what can we do to address that versus let me create something I think everyone needs yep. and give it back? I mean, that is mm-hmm. truly a, a major difference in comparison to some other places. Yeah, and honestly, we just we don't have time to create things that people don't don't need, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. If we're going to do something and we're going to take the time, we're going to make sure that some it's something that's going to be useful to somebody. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I think for people who go to events, like share, share information. If there's something you want to learn more about, give mm-hmm. the feedback. Like you, you will read them, you will look at them, mm-hmm. you will see what's there, but it's not just that people are being heard or that they are being, you know, listened to, but also there's a chance that they're going to take their what they're wanting and it could become something mm-hmm. that you guys are able to provide. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's great. I mean, that's that's phenomenal in comparison to what other places or what individuals might be trying to do. You are really 
listening and paying attention to the need of the people that are trying to talk to you as as an audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think going back to what you said in the beginning too, how it started with a family story and how the family is so important. You know, we don't try, we don't focus on just youth, right? Because parents are equally as important. And we also do teachers and we do professionals. And so we try and educate um, a wide variety of people from different like backgrounds and everything so that they can we're hitting a wider net and so we don't just focus on one audience type either right no that's great I've it's individuals you know it's family members I've seen law enforcement mm-hmm. in attendance at your events I've run into people I have worked with that I have connected with you know other counselors other directors of programs I've, I've whenever i've been to an event i've known someone there and, and sometimes yeah i invite a lot of people to <laughs> yeah to attend which is great i try and get you know some staff members of mine you know if i get one or two counselors to go to an event or something like that but when there was more of it in person i would run into people that i did not plan on seeing but mm-hmm. because they're being reached out to and this is for professionals as well mm-hmm. we're running into them so the net of people you have reached has also been a lot different than a place that says i'm just going to work with kids i'm just going to mm-hmm. work with families i'm just going to work with adults was that always the idea of being able to to reach a wider net is that something that just has happened as you guys have grown well at first it was let's get to the kids because they need to know about the true consequences and then we were seeing the parents need it too so then we did the parents and so we did our bedroom and we're and then school professionals were like well this would be useful for our teachers who are doing searches or seeing <laughs> things in backpacks so then we're like oh we can welcome the professionals and then it just kept going and then one of the things before covid we are toying with is how do we get this information just outside of Waukesha County because we can hold events but then not everybody gets that information so with our webinars we have people from all over the United States and so now they're like um, you know in Washington hey can you do a virtual professional development for our teachers here so we're able to like branch out into all these different states um, with our virtual presentations. And two, sometimes like with the parent education, like it's a stigma. And so people don't want other parents to know that my kid might be experimenting. So sometimes when we would hold those events, you know, we'd get a handful of people um, when we know there's what, 3,600 families in a school district. (laughs) So um, having the webinar style allows, you know, some anonymity. Mm -hmm. Right. And you've also been able to get some professionals too from other areas. You know, I'm local here, so... Mm -hmm. It's good to have local as well, but, you know, the guy yesterday that presented yep. was all the way out from California, or Colorado. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. you've had some professionals also from a wide range willing to present, and that's not just a, I wouldn't say that's an easy thing to get people from all over to present, yeah. but that has grown to mm-hmm. not just local people, but like national individuals who are big presenters in this field. Yeah, we must have some big personalities because we met Luke like two years ago and before the webinar, he was like, I will never forget you ladies. I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but he's like, you guys are just, you exude passion. So yeah, it's nice. It's, it's great. It feels good. And one of the things I've noticed is the innovation, you know, doing a webinar is fantastic. 
uh, doing the podcast stuff is great too, but you've also created some innovative ways of trying to educate people. Like one of them is the, the wake up mm-hmm. bedroom one. And yeah. then there's the school one too. Yeah. So those are innovative programs and can you just talk about that or like where that came from and, and doing that? Sure. Um, Katie and my mom did one for the drug-free communities where they set up like a, what is it? A, it was like a window front store corner and they were like, how can we use this space to educate people? So we were like, let's set up a room and have all these warning signs. Well, it's harder with a window display. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so we did our best and it actually turned out awesome. And we had a, like a launch event where people came and we did like a tour through it. And then, and then my mom was like, okay, well, let's do this like in real person, like where people can touch and feel. So we set it up in our old office space and we opened for like two weeks and it was packed. All, it was always packed. People were always coming in. So then we're like, how do we take this? People want it. People want their hands on things and make it into a presentation so people aren't missing things. When you come in to do a tour and you're halfway through, you missed all the beginning. So we decided and people are like, well, I don't know what a dab is. I don't know what this is. (laughs) Excuse me. And so we're like, okay, let we do the education on the substances and then the bedroom and then parenting tips in an hour and a half. It's a quick presentation, but you get to see things. You get to hear about the substances and then a follow up on how do we you know, prevent this or if I'm going through it. And so from that, with the teachers wanted something. So Katie and I do a backpack search and a person search because there's a lot of hiding spots on your, we don't show them everything, Um, (laughs) but uh, some of the spots we do. And so, um, you know, teachers can't always search backpacks, but if the backpack's open and they see something, you know, at least they could say to the assistant principal or something like, hey, you know, they're passing this around or I saw this. And just the more people who are aware of what's out there, I think it's better for our kids altogether. Like, we had one teacher come up to us after a presentation, and we showed them, like, the jewels and how they can plug into the yeah. the computer. And she was like, she told Ashley, she's like, oh, my gosh, I was charging a student's vape device in class because she didn't know what it was. So <laughs> we get so much insight from teachers and SROs and all of that. So we pick up tips along the way, too. But having, they're with kids, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. So they're important, too. Mm-hmm. There's just things that you... As you, as things change, the ways they do it and how it's, you know, the device that's used, how it's used, how it's stored, ways that it's been hidden, like that always changes. So there's not just one way you can say this is it. As you learn more, you know, back when I was younger, there wasn't that way of plugging into a computer. No. (laughs) But I think sometimes parents stick to that, how it was when I was younger way. And if I'm not seeing that, then, you know, there must not be anything there. But there are so many other ways that it's going on. And I remember working with, when we were in residential, we did a room search on a kid. And this is, just so it would be like the same day, is we're in a a meeting with his mom, his social worker, myself as a counselor was in there. And we're talking about how things are going. And at the time, one of the youth workers decided to do a bedroom check and see how the bedroom was. So he, he checks the room and he knocks on our, the door and I was like, you know, we're in a meeting. What's up? And I did a room search and I found this. Well, it was, it was a roll of aluminum foil and it was, it was just from the house. That's because this is where they live. 
Yeah. So I put it down. So I, I said, you know, thanks for letting me know. And I put it on the table. And I go, we just found this. You want, you want to tell us about this? And the mom was like really shocked. The mom didn't have any clue Mm-mm. why we made a big deal of this. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, so he took some aluminum foil from you guys? Like, what is that theft? And we're like, well, one, that isn't the right thing to do. Right. But this is a lot more than that. Like, do you know what he is probably trying to do with this? Right. You know, so when families would find, like, spoons in rooms and other things, like, they were thinking that, like, oh, the kid must, you know, must just be eating in here or something. Yeah. And that is not the case. No. With, no. with some of these kids no. and teens that we work with. But they don't know those things. They when we do it, uh, my mom shows her first three items, and everybody their jaws are dropped. They're like, "What?" I mean, they're just we're even floored. Like we get emails of, "Oh, here's a new stash item," and we're like, "What?" ourselves. So when drugs are e- getting easier to conceal, easier to bring into places, it's not you're not looking for really rolling papers or pipes anymore. It's all kinds of things. So you know, our recommendation for parents is you know. Google it once a month. Yeah. You know, how yeah. can I hide my drugs? Because that's where you learn about these hiding things. So, and we would learn a lot for doing for working in residential. You do room searches, mm-hmm. so we would learn so much about it. And yeah, in the one area you think it wouldn't be, it, you know, all of a sudden highlighter is hollowed out, and there's something inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember I was searching someone's room and. For some reason, I don't know why I paid attention to this, but they had a Kleenex box in their room. And for some reason, I don't know what it was. I can't remember, but something about it just, I was like, this isn't right. Well, they had something underneath all the Kleenex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I took the Kleenex out, put something down in there, put all the Kleenex on top of that. So someone goes by and looks at that and just thinks, oh, it's a, it's a Kleenex box. Uh-huh. But that is where they'll get creative. They will find new ways they will find mm-hmm. different techniques that you just you don't know what it's going to be but you got to be able to think like that yeah mm-hmm. i think that program teaches parents to think like that it does yeah. yes like, this isn't just a bedroom this yes. is also a place where something might be hidden or kept secret how do i find it now <laughs> yes we have parents that will call after one we had one mom who was like i searched her room i couldn't find anything and so i laid on her floor and i was like if i was her where would i find something hide something and she said i found it i found it so it's just and it's giving parents permission you right, know right. a lot of times like i don't want to invade their privacy i don't but like this is for their health and well-being this is for their safety it's okay to snoop a little bit because they're under a lot of pressure and they might feel like it's safe or it's okay and so you know parents it is okay to search their rooms you're doing it for their well-being and we also tell parents too like my mom was she was a very on it mom she searched my room all the time and so when sandy and i were putting together the bedroom i was like can you tell me if you ever found anything or like what were some of the things and she said you know I never found anything, and so I must have just been really sneaky, but um, we always tell parents that too, like, if you know something in your heart and your gut is off with your kid, um, listen to that too, because you might not find anything, or you might not know what it is, but always, you know, go with that too. Mm-hmm. And I think too, a part of that is also, when you do find something, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. Because that's really scary, to be honest. Right. I've, I've had professionals tell me, and this is why some don't want to work with substance use, 
I had someone who told me, yeah, the mom found this white powder in the room and the mom brought it to a counseling session yep. and told the therapist, like, I found this. What do I do with this? <laughs> and there's a, that is a scary thing. Yeah. Like, what do you do if you find a substance? Like, do I call the police? Do I, do I just dump it and get rid of it? Like that, those are like legit questions a parent thinks about. Oh yeah. One of the things that I talk to him about, though, is getting caught also isn't, that's not the end of it. No. no. And I think, and I've learned this through working with people with alcohol, is you see, like, the family member or the wife or the husband who they think if they find the bottle of booze or they catch them drinking, like, the game is up. <laughs> like, now, now what can they do? I caught them red-handed. They can't deny it now. Well, oh, sure they, they can. Oh, sure they can. Oh, sure they can. So part of it is getting caught for family members. I just tell them that's not, the answer is not you catch them or you caught something and now they're going to change or now they're going to admit to it. It's just a part of what you need to do, but it's it's not the end. But I, I think I see family members think that's, there, there's like some relief, there's some anger, some disbelief but there's also like well i caught them so now now we can get this over with but that's not the case yeah i can definitely attest to that in multiple cases um because when you catch them you feel like okay i I, everything in my gut is telling me this was happening and it was happening and now here it is but you're validated right we're looking for that validation but it does not end there. We always tell parents, you know, if you find something for the first time, you know, talk to your child. Did they bring it home? Are they holding it for somebody else? Right? Because, well, it's not mine. It's Susie's. <laughs> okay, so then why would you bring something home, you know, as an in- welcome in our house? Have, open those conversations. You know, maybe they're struggling with anxiety and they say, well, vaping really helps me. Okay, so let's go talk to somebody about that anxiety. You know, we try to have teach parents that they need to be open and not just, you know, come down hard on them because they want their kids to talk to them. So have those conversations with them of why they found it, what's really going on. And then they always ask us, well, what point do I need help? And so we always say when the consequences no longer matter for your child, like you take away their phone, you take away their car, you take away whatever you can, and they still continue to use then reach out, you know, because a handful of times you do, you know, mom finds your vape device and says, if you do this again, this is going to happen. And they're like, fine, I'm done. I'm not going to do that. The consequence is enough. But if they continue to make those choices, then it's time to seek outside help. And that doesn't get talked about enough because when I ever see someone getting caught, like right away, family member wants me to like, like diagnose the kid was like an addict, like right away there. Right. Like they get caught at school vaping. They get caught with like weed at home. They get caught drinking right? and they come see me whether or not it's because the school recommended it or required it. Or if the parents decide to like right away, the parents sometimes look at me being like, well, tell him he's an addict. He's got all these problems. And part of me is like, that's, I don't just label people that I don't just right. diagnose someone with a, a use disorder just because it's concerning. You know, we do it because there's criteria behind that, because there are things that we do as a professional to diagnose that. But there's a lot of people who like, yeah, they get in trouble and they get caught and there's consequences and it stops. Right. It does. Mm -hmm. But there are also times where it doesn't stop. 
-hmm. It gets worse. Mm -hmm. They think of how do I get away with it more? They think of other things and all of a sudden the consequences are just becoming road barriers and roadblocks are just becoming like paper thin to them. They just go right through it. Mm -hmm. That tells me there's something more going on here. Right. But if a kid got caught and he's not doing anything about it and he's like, oh, I, I know I messed up. I ain't touching that again. That was stupid. Yep. I'm not going to label him as having a, a use disorder right. when he got caught maybe experimenting or trying something or just something like that is not always a this mm-hmm. or that case. Mm-hmm. I think the label makes it easy sometimes, you know, like, okay. <laughs> you know, and so sometimes I can see, you know, like it makes it, okay, yes, now I understand, you know, and it's like you don't always want that, you know. There's other ways. And we run a class, too, um, as one of our programs for kids that do get caught. Like, so if a parent finds something or if a kid gets caught at school or underage drinking, um, we run a one-day class, which uses the Prime for Life curriculum, which is absolutely awesome. Mm -hmm. And so we spend, you know, eight hours exploring how does addiction happen, what does it look like, and it's a really good class. And so that's, that's always available for people in our area, too. Um, we've been full almost every month, but there's a lot of kids that just, just need that class and don't need anything further. Mm-hmm. And anyone should get that. When they when people ask me, well, how soon do you start talking to kids about drugs and alcohol and, and addiction and whatnot? I'm like, you know, before it was a little different, but nowadays with technology and stuff, I had to tell them they're going to learn from you. Yeah. They're going to learn from me because they probably got in trouble or there's something bad happened. That's how... People sometimes come see me. Right. Or they're going to learn from peers and social media. Mm -hmm. There is, what they're hoping for is there is a fourth option, which is they don't learn about or they don't know about it. Yep. But I tell them that's not, that's not the case anymore. No. So at a young age, talking about it, and even if they don't have a major concerning issue with it, it's still something that's okay for them to learn about. Learning yep. about it isn't going to have, is not going to lead them to becoming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an argument that, you know, if I teach them about that, well, they start using, but it's like we teach kids to drive before they actually drive, right? So we have right. to, I mean, I have a 10 year old who's in fifth grade. Um, he just turned 11, actually. But um, when he was younger, you know, people are talking about weed already in middle school. So, like, I, he knows what I do, and obviously I'm more tell them probably younger than what most parents would but you know it's really important to have those conversations because at 10 years old they have no idea and if their friends are saying hey try this it's great they're probably not going to say no if they have no idea what it is so definitely young age yeah at least that's an option now so hey if you if you're not comfortable talking to them about it that's okay like i if you're not the expert don't pretend to be right if you don't know it right don't try and tell them because the moment you lie to them or tell them something that's different, you're like done. that, they, they run with that. Yes. And then your credibility gets shot. Yes. But if you don't want to talk to them about it because you're unsure of or you don't know how to or you don't know what's going on, then what are your options left? They are organizations like yours and other mm-hmm. resources that can do it. There are professionals like me that can do it. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to go those routes, you're really leaving the door open to they're going to learn from fam or from peers mm-hmm. or from social media. Yeah. And do you trust that source? <laughs> do, you, do you trust that that's going to educate them what they need to know? No. So it's good to see that that availability to educate kids yeah. A- yeah. about that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So last question. 
is I know a lot of family members, loved ones, I think they have a lot of, they deal with, with what they, they're going through and they find ways to, whether the person has stopped using, whether they keep using, but they have ideas or dreams of wanting to like start a foundation or they want to create a, a 5k. They want to maybe do community talks or they, I think a lot of family members get the idea they want to give back or do more. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I believe that there's probably a lot of people that don't take that step and it, it either falls short. They don't know what to do. They have no idea where to start. So let's say someone wanted to think of doing something more after what they've been through. Like with everything your organization has been through with, with each of you, with your own stories and where you are now, like what's like the best piece of advice to tell them where to start or or what direction can they start to make some progress if they really want to try and do that? Yeah, so my advice would be, one, look at if there's a, something already established in the area. Because maybe you want to help, but you don't want to take on the full burden of applying for it, the financial part of it. So if it is something and there's somebody else that's passionate about doing it and you can partner together, that's great. If you want to start your own nonprofit, I will tell you that there you get so many more no's before you get any yeses. Um, for our first three or four years, I mean, it was a struggle because people didn't know us. They didn't know what we were going to say, you know, and so we got so many no's and then finally it clicked. And another piece of advice I give is don't try to go too big too fast. You know, start small with what you know well and do that and, and listen to what people want from that. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, even somebody we used to work with, she did a balloon um, release for her daughter and she just started small and that grew and grew and grew. So do what you can in your own capacity and then it, it'll grow, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. So the, the best way for people to find out about your organization is to go to your website. Yes. Right? And that's yes. yourchoiceprevention.org. Correct. And there's a lot on there. Like mm-hmm. It seems like it just grows more and more with, with everything that's on there. <laughs> yes. But that is a very fast way to find out events, the webinars, uh, and, and contacting. And clearly, you listen to people who contact you. Yes. So if people have questions or if people just want to know something or, or to learn more, they should just reach out to you as well through that and, and connect with you because you do listen. That's that's huge. Absolutely. Yeah. So check them out, go to their website. I want to thank both of you for joining, you know, the work you've done for a lot of people, the fact that I became a, a listener and then I got to be an attendee, <laughs> then I got to present and then have you be on this podcast. It, it's been, it's been great getting more involved with your organization as well. So I, I do truly appreciate that as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So check them out. Pay attention to what they're doing. And as always, I hope you learned something.